Uh, the book of Esther is, uh, has been in our minds uh, this week, uh, as, it is, uh, the, uh, as it was uh, the Feast of uh, Purim, the Feast of Esther, on, uh, on um, a Wednesday night uh, and on Thursday. And, uh, of course, the Feast of Esther, for those of you that are not familiar with it, it is uh, the celebration of the victory of the Jewish people over the, the Persians. It was not a war like to end all wars. It was a victory, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in a slice of time that the Jewish people had over the, uh, the Persians. And it serves, really, uh, in Jewish history... Uh, as uh, this uh, a moment to look at of great hope. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, we read it every year and we remember that God is faithful to the Jewish people and, and we celebrate uh, the victory over, over enemies. Uh, and of course, we've been doing this for 2,500 years approximately uh, on this uh, holiday. And whenever there has been a disaster in the Jewish world, this holiday comes to mind. Uh, even uh, there's a famous um, Nazi war criminal by the name of Julius Streicher, uh, who said the most uh, ironic thing just before he was hanged. Uh, I, he, in 1946, he was con, you know, convicted at the Nuremberg war, war Trials, and uh, uh, he said... Purim 1946. Isn't that kind of ironic that he would say that? That he had a knowledge of that and, and had that kind of um, understanding. It kind of reminds us of uh, Haman's wife, Zeresh, you know, who uh, at first tells uh, Haman, yeah, build the gallows. Uh, but then uh, out of her mouth, comes this, uh, you know, great uh, truth that if Mordecai is a Jew, uh, that means that, Haman, you're in really big trouble, you know? Uh, and so it's rather interesting uh, how even the nations uh, understand that. But yet, uh, at Purim, we are reminded of uh, disasters uh, in our history and at the same time, the faithfulness of God. And isn't it so sadly Ironic that at Purim this year, we have had this uh, terrible tragedy uh, in Brussels uh, uh, of a terrorism, this terrible act of uh, another uh, terrible act of terror. And it again brings to mind the story of Purim, where we don't see the visible uh, uh, God of Israel, and we don't see there the, the parting of the waters and a and a great miracle, we see a tragedy, yet at the very same time, uh, we do indeed see God's hand in varieties of ways. And sometimes, just like in the book of Esther, you have to step back and see it. And other times, you have to wait a while and then look back historically uh, and see uh, the hand of God. But all the way through it, uh, we, uh, we believe that God never changes but we see a great rebellion in humanity, and it never ceases to amaze us the different ways that uh, human beings bring self-destruction uh, into this world and upon ourselves. The only thing that has really changed is technology from the days of uh, Haman and, 
and all, you know, and all the way uh, through, through history. So the holiday of Purim does have great meaning for us. What we do focus, though, really on the celebration of Purim uh, is not the um, is is not the uh, uh, the evil, but uh, how the uh, the victory came at the end, uh, and so there is a celebration when we read the Book of Esther. We do so with great gusto and oftentimes with frivolity and. And we make a lot of noise, you know, when we hear Haman's name and, uh, you know, and, uh, and all of that. I always like it when, it, there have been years past when we read the, the, uh, the Megillah Esther, the, the scroll of Esther on Shabbat morning, you know, here. And we'd have like visitors, you know. So like this is a regular service. What? We're like hissing and booing, you know. Usually that's as a result of the sermon. That's the, usually the result of the message. But, you know, when we hear Haman's name, we make a lot of uh, noise. And uh, we have plays, carnivals, masquerade uh, parties. And so tonight, you know, wow, we're kind of doing it all in one. <laughs> and uh, so uh, tonight, I hope that you will come um, for Purim. And what a great uh, time that, uh, you know, that, that we're going uh, to have. Now, there's something else about this uh, holiday that this year brings some irony and confusion. And what in our messianic world doesn't bring some irony and confusion? Uh, But more than one person has asked me, what is the relationship of this holiday to Easter? Okay. Now, for the uninformed, that makes perfect sense. That is actually a very good question. Okay. That's actually, I'll bet there's more than one person in this room that might actually be thinking that in the back of your mind. Uh, And so it's a very good question. Uh, And it is ironic that it takes place at this time. So first I have to explain just in a couple of sentences that as we know, the Jewish calendar is sort of like a semi-lunar, it's not like a 100% lunar, but a a semi-lunar calendar, okay? Uh, and, uh, and so, therefore, the, uh, the calendar that we use is a little bit different. Uh, and just as uh, we have leap years, this is a leap year, right? Uh, uh, 2016. So, 5776 on the Jewish calendar uh, actually is a leap year also. Seven times out of every 19 years, there is a leap year, and we get an extra month, okay? Uh, that comes... Uh, at the end of the year, okay? So the last month of the year is Adar, so you have Adar 1 and you have Adar 2. And Adar 2 technically is supposed to be the regular month, and the extra month comes first, and then the second month. Uh, and, and so uh, uh, Purim, Feast of Esther, falls usually sometime from late February to the end of March, Okay? Uh, depending on whether it's a leap year or what's going on in the, in the Jewish year. And we have the, uh, this leap month uh, so, that all, so that all the holidays stay in the right season uh, of, the, of the year. But the calendar, the, uh, uh, you know, the, we'll just, the Gregorian calendar, right? That uh, uh, calendar uh, also has movement in it, right, as well especially at this time of year. The reason I say especially at this time of year 
is because what people uh, refer to as Easter uh, actually does not take place at the time when Yeshua died or rose from the dead. Okay? Uh, it takes place at the beginning of spring. All right? Uh, and, uh, and so there's a particular Sunday after the equinox, and that's when Easter is supposed to be. Uh, and, of course, we could go, go to town about everything about, about that, but that's not really our purpose uh, right now. The, the point is, is just simply to say that the, uh, the holiday fluctuates in when it takes place, and so does Purim, and so does Passover, right? So uh, Passover this year is at the end, uh, close to the end of April, see? Usually, it's sometime within a week or two, usually, of uh, when the Christian world celebrates uh, Easter, celebrates the, the resurrection at that time. Usually, it's somewhere in that uh, region. Very unusual that it'd be so late that Purim, the Feast of Esther, coincides with this time of year in the Christ, on the Christian calendar. That's kind of unusual. But I think that it, so I hope we get that, okay? So, so uh, that we just get it once and for all, right? That uh, Purim is not the same thing as Passover, right? All right? And that Passover will take place when it does every single year on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. I can't help it if we use a different kind of calendar and we're used to it. But every year, Passover is always on the same date on the Hebrew calendar the 14th of Nisan. That is about April 23rd this year. Okay? Uh, and that makes Purim uh, late uh, also because we have this extra month. All right? That extra month. And the reason that we celebrate Purim now and not... Remember, we have two, two months called the same thing. It'd be like at December, if, 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 if we had a elite month Right, and we had December first December and like December two, you know, like two months of, of the same thing. So it's called Adar, Adar one and Adar two. But Adar two is is considered the real month of Adar, the one that's every year. So that hopefully will answer the question of why don't we celebrate Purim in the first Adar month? So then it's when it's like supposed to be. You know, like, uh, you know, three weeks ago or, or something, or even four weeks ago, okay? So the answer is because Adar 2 is the month. So that's why the holidays are where they are, all right? But it is also very uh, ironic uh, and, and leads us really to some interesting thinking because this year... The uh, holiday of Purim on Wednesday night and Thursday <laughs> coincides with the day on the traditional church calendar that Yeshua had the Last Supper. Isn't that fascinating? At least on Thursday. You know, it's kind of interesting and poignant that this week, to many Christian people, is understood to be the Holy Week, and we're thinking about Yeshua coming into, uh, uh, you know, Jerusalem, and, and uh, in the beginning of the week, everybody is welcoming him, in, welcoming him in, but at the end of the week, he is crucified. 
And, and, and so we think about Yeshua as, indeed, the suffering servant. And so this year, we're thinking about Yeshua, the suffering servant, at the same time that we're thinking about Israel suffering at the hands of persecutors and then ultimately having a victory. So that is, I don't know if any of you have thought about that, but uh, that is uh, quite an interesting uh, quite an interesting uh, thought. And, uh, you know, in our um, uh, uh, MSI uh, uh, class uh, in Isaiah, we learned that the Jewish remnant of Israel functions as a servant of the Lord. I mean, that's what the Bible says. You know, when you read in Isaiah chapter 43, and I you know, like in verse 10, you read, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. He calls Israel, the Jewish people, my servant. And then quite clearly also in chapter 44 of Isaiah, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from my womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. So Israel is called, indeed, the, the servant. Okay, But we know uh, that uh, out of Israel, out of the Jewish people, there is one who is called to be the servant. And the purpose of the servant is to restore the children of Israel we read in uh, chapter 49, he says here, um, And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. This is the individual servant from within Israel speaking. In verse 5 of Isaiah 49, And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So this individualized servant from within Israel is raised up to restore Israel, to be able to be the servant of the Lord, to raise up the Jewish people, to be able to be the, uh, the witnesses, to be a light to the nations, and on top of it, he himself provides the revelation of the God of Israel to the nations, to those who are not Jewish, to come uh, and to participate uh, in uh, this uh, new uh, covenant where God says, I will put my law in your inward parts and I will forgive your sins, you know, uh, and I will forgive you and remember your sins no more. Uh, and, and so that's rather interesting. And then, of course, you know, in Isaiah 53, we read about this suffering, uh, this suffering servant. We read about how he's misunderstood. We read about how uh, his appearance is marred more than any man. We read about how he had no stately form or majesty, like, you know, some like a charismatic appearance that, you know, like filling up the room, you know, when he enters, that, that kind of uh, uh, thing. And, and really what you have in Isaiah 53 is a confession of the remnant of Israel saying, we didn't understand him, we didn't recognize him, we misunderstood him, we got it all wrong. In fact, we thought he was suffering for his own sins. Just read the first few verses of Isaiah 53. 
okay? But then it says in verse 4, but surely our griefs he bore. Whoa. And our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So we see the sufferings uh, of the Messiah, and this week we're reminded of the sufferings of the Messiah. But it's quite interesting how God actually has called Israel, Israel in its totality, and most definitely the remnant of Israel, to suffer as well. Part of the calling of Israel is indeed uh, uh, suffering. One way we know that is that Isaiah 53 is not simply uh, a messianic promise of the uh, Messiah suffering. It is a, uh, an admission that we are not going to believe him when he comes because of the testimony of the, of the remnant of Israel in Isaiah 53. It's like a confession. Isaiah 53 is like a confession of Jewish Messiah followers. We didn't get him, but now we got him. See? And so, by the very words in Isaiah 53, we see that Israel is called to reject the Messiah. And in the rejection of the Messiah comes suffering. And so there is a calling for that. How do we know that also? In the Brit Hadashah, sometimes referred to as the New Covenant. Anna was great there. She called me on that one. Uh, in Romans chapter 11, we read these words. Okay, in verse 11, just to cut to the chase, so to speak. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Speaking of the rebellion of Jewish people uh, against uh, the, the Lord and the coming of his Messiah. Okay? I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? And then the word is, may it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So there is a calling of Israel to reject the Messiah. What are all the implications of that? That really, there's no bottom to that well. Okay, we could talk about that and think, just dwell on that for a long time. But it's quite clear that that is a true statement though. See? And so then he says, now of their transgression, again, he's, you know, if their sin, okay, rejecting the Messiah, be the riches for the world, meaning that the, the good news goes to the nations, okay? And their failure be riches for the Gentiles. How much more will their fulfillment be? Meaning, when we say Isaiah 53, when we recognize that Yeshua is the Messiah as a people, okay? So then he says, But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry of somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. Now here, big verse, 15. Here's the reason why he says that. For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, that's what he's leading up to here. If their rejection, transgression, uh, uh, sin, be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So Paul himself in Romans 11 is saying that the rejection of the Jewish people has something to do with the reconciliation of the world. 
That's a heavy statement. That Jewish suffering has a salvation purpose in this world. How does that play out? What does that mean in the heavenlies? I don't exactly know. But, but it does give great meaning to Jewish suffering. And so sometimes people will say, well, it's because they rejected the Messiah. And then we say, yes, but notice what the text says, that this is part of the plan of God. And so, uh, therefore, uh, uh, when we uh, see this, we need to be praying that Jewish people would know the Messiah, even though we're still part of this people and that there is a calling to suffer. And may I suggest that is just as much true for all Messiah followers. And may I suggest that as much as many uh, wonderful people who love the Lord want to celebrate every Jewish holiday and, you know, uh, are Torah observant and uh, also called to suffer along with Israel. Okay? You can't turn it, you can't have it both ways. See? So what's really interesting is that believers in Yeshua suffer for being believers in Yeshua, but what many Christians don't understand is that suffering is actually related to the new covenant. That that suffering that believers undergo, even if they don't know anything about anything Jewish, but they really love the Lord and they're suffering for their faith, it's related to the new covenant and to the calling of Jewish suffering in this world. Now, the good news is, is that there is a consummation. That there is, uh, there is a fulfillment. Uh, and as uh, uh, Paul says, there will be life from the dead. See? Uh, and, and so, just as we're reminded in the story uh, of Esther, that uh, there is a victory at the end, so we read in lots of places in the Bible, a victory at the end. You know, in, uh, in, um, certainly in Romans 11, Gosh, we're right there. In Romans 11, at the, toward the end of the chapter, okay, I, we read here I, in verse 25, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, i.e., I conceded, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He's saying there's an unconditional covenantal relationship. And that even though Israel is in sin and fulfilling a calling of suffering, the day is going to come when they shall recognize him whom they have pierced, and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, as it says in Zechariah uh, chapter, uh, chapter 12. And, of course, in Ezekiel chapter 37, you read about the dry bones. I'll just say it. We don't have time. Read chapter 37 of Ezekiel, right? The valley of dry bones. Right? They're all over the place. And you see there's a rattling and a shaking. And the bones come together. And then all the different other body parts kind of form. And then you have this 
dead body, and then life is breathed into it, and then after that it says, and then I uh, will pour my spirit in them. Okay? What that tells us is, is that God has never abandoned the Jewish people regardless of whatever may be going on in the world. Okay? So you can say the same thing about believers in Yeshua. God has never abandoned uh, us, uh, whatever it may be. All right? Uh, and there is a process that takes place that we may not see in the Bible in Ezekiel 37 regarding Israel, regarding the, the Jewish people. Uh, it is uh, viewed as like a, a rattling and a shaking, and the bones come together. And then you have like this dead body. And then you have life that comes in the body, so it becomes living, but still not infused with the Spirit of God. And then infused with the Spirit of God. Okay? In this world, we see uh, that God has definitely not abandoned his people. There have been terrible, terrible atrocities and persecutions uh, that have taken place. But there has never been the annihilation of the Jewish people. And not only that, but... Uh, after the Holocaust, you have a state of Israel, right? Uh, which many people thought would never, ever come to pass, right? And may I suggest that that is part of the grace of God and the coming of Yeshua, the Messiah, that in his grace and in his mercy, in, in his restoring Israel, in the midst of persecutions, there is a nation of Israel, a living, breathing nation of Israel. But still... That's not, all, that's not the whole story because there, are, there is just as many Jewish people who live outside of the land who live inside of the land. And so God is still calling his people back and there, the day will indeed come when Jewish people from the four corners of the earth will return to Eretz Yisrael and then there will be this magnanimous event that will take place. Israel will be saved, uh, meaning that the Jewish people will en masse recognize the Messiahship of Yeshua and receive him uh, as uh, a Messiah. Today, it is only a remnant. It is only those Jewish Messiah followers uh, who are really uh, walking in the ways of Yeshua. And isn't it amazing, as Messiah followers, we don't escape any kind of um, uh, persecution, but we become the, uh, the living, uh, suffering servant uh, of, uh, of the Lord, not for the purpose of uh, actually, literally saving people from their sins. Only the Messiah does that. But Yeshua is regenerating Israel. And that's why in John chapter 15, in John chapter 15, he is the vine. We're the branches. But if you go back and you read in Isaiah chapter 5 and elsewhere, Israel is the vineyard. And just as there's a servant that rises up in the midst of the servants to restore the servanthood of Israel. So there is a vine that is raised up to restore the vineyard of Israel and the nations who become partakers. And using the olive tree illustration in Romans 11 are grafted in. And so there you, there you see this calling. And so you see how poignant it is that uh, we have uh, Purim, the same time as we're remembering the sufferings of the Messiah, at least in, you know, in the Christian world, it's kind of poignant. Kind of poignant. And may we never forget our own calling, therefore, uh, you know, in, uh, in all of that. We read in a lot of places, of course, in the New Covenant, 
uh, that we are indeed uh, sufferers. One place is in Romans chapter 8, where we read uh, here uh, in verse uh, 18, For I consider the sufferings of the present time. You know what's interesting when Paul says, I consider the sufferings of the present time? He means there's sufferings in the present time. Okay? Are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, to us or in us. And so we see that there is this great hope that we have. Another place uh, is in 1 uh, Peter, in the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant, okay, where uh, we read here in uh, chapter 1, we read about uh, the living hope uh, that we have. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Yeshua, the Messiah, from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, which will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for his salvation, ready to be revealed, revealed in the last time. But then it says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice. It's great to know that. Why? Even now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And so, uh, we, uh, we have this living hope. And, oh, there's so many places. In Hebrews chapter 11, the very end of chapter 11, you read about all those people, uh, you know, of great faith, right? But you read at the end of chapter 11, some of them were sawn in half, some of them were torn apart, some of them, you know, and they didn't live to see the day, Right? And then you read, with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also have our eyes fixed on, on Yeshua, uh, the Messiah. So there is, in the Brit Hadashah, clearly uh, a demonstration of persecution with the end result being redemption, you know, and, and being raised from the dead. Okay? So we see that persecution and victory just as we see in Esther. But now, speaking of Esther, as we uh, try to wrap this up, okay, when you look in the book of Esther, it's quite interesting that uh, uh, how Esther is portrayed, actually, in the book of Esther. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I think I once gave a whole message on this one thing, and that is that up until the fourth chapter, she doesn't say anything. Up until the fourth chapter, Esther is passive. Okay? Esther is taken. Esther is in the harem. Esther is chosen. Esther, right? But then she's confronted by Mordecai about her calling being placed by the invisible hand of God in this moment for such a time as this. And then finally, uh, we see, uh, we hear uh, the voice uh, of Esther. First, her voice is, I can't do this. It's impossible for me to do. The king, uh, you know, my life is in danger, and, and, and it, it just isn't going to happen. And then Mordecai challenges her, right? You're familiar with it. In verse 13, Do not imagine that in the king's palace, that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. That is the providence of God. That without seeing God, without hearing God, without thus saith the Lord, here you are. And Mordecai had an understanding 
that whatever happens, there's going to be deliverance for us. He understood evidently a covenant relationship here, the faithfulness of God, but he also understood personal destiny in people's lives, being placed in a particular situation to rise up at the right moment for such a time as this. Esther gets it. Next thing you know, she's quarterbacking the team, right? She says, okay, go. Assemble all the Jews who are found in Shushan and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. She doesn't just say, well, all right, I'll go. And, and she's like, whoa, okay, I get it. To me, this is like Asaph entering the sanctuary of God and perceiving their end. She had, through the words of Mordechai, an experience with God, where she realizes her divine destiny, that she has been placed in this moment in time for such a time as this. And may I suggest that we have been placed, perhaps, in our historical context for such a time as this, where we are called in the midst of, of uh, terrorism, in the midst of darkness, moral, ethical, debauchery, all of it, to demonstrate what it means to be a Messiah follower today. To, to pray, to fast, and when God calls upon us, to act as well. And, and therefore, we recognize that we indeed uh, are part of uh, God's history, as Esther was part of God's history, and God does indeed use people to bring about uh, his uh, will, and all of history is God's history, and the history of the Jewish people is indeed messianic history, see? Uh, and so, may God uh, speak into our lives and our hearts as we realize that we, either as individuals or as a community, are called to be a light uh, in this world with the knowledge that God will never leave us, nor will he forsake us, but that indeed he loves us uh, dearly and mightily, and that we get to be part of the big picture of what God is doing. Sometimes we don't get to see the victory in our own personal situation or our own life, but we need to realize that we're called for something larger than our own selves, our own lives. That's what Esther understood. She realized it's not about me and my own personal well-being. It's about what God is doing among us. May we get that message today in our own lives. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, we thank you, God, for the, um, the great truth of this, that you raise up people for such a time as this. You've called us to be, um, as, a, uh, as a Messianic uh, uh, Jewish community, You've called us to stand for what is true and what is right in terms of Jewish issues uh, and in terms of moral and ethical issues. And as, uh, as Messiah followers, may we realize that there is a calling to be a suffering servant of yours. Lord, and thank you that you have empowered us with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Spirit of God. Lord, may we be the people who transmit this message of life and Messiah, that there is another way that there is an alternative life that we can live in this world by your ways, by living out your will, 
in, the, uh, in the, uh, the power of the Ruach HaKodesh. And Lord, may we remember that when we confess our sins, as we said last week, you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us so that we uh, can always be that cleansed vessel serving you. Lord, may we be motivated by Purim to be encouraged and not be beaten down by current events. And may we realize, Lord, that you indeed have wrought the victory for us in the resurrection of the Messiah. And may we remember it, may we know it, and may we live it. And we thank you, and we pray, Lord, that we might celebrate it as well. We pray in Yeshua's name.